Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Today's episode is a bit different from our normal fare because today is the day our new book, Truth Over Tribe, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not the Donkey or the Elephant, releases. Thank you to everyone listening to this for being a part of a growing movement of Christians resisting political tribalism in the church and showing a better path forward. Our prayer is that this book helps people see why tribalism makes life miserable, how we got tribal, and what practical steps Jesus gives us to leave tribalism behind. To that end, we wanted to share two of our chapters from our book, free of charge, with all of our listeners. If you like them and you haven't pre-ordered the book, would you do us a huge favor and go to Amazon or your favorite bookseller and buy a copy? Here's the deal. We aren't taking any money home from this, none of the advance, none of the royalties. It's all going back into ministry that can end tribalism. But the more copies you buy and read or give away, the more this movement, fighting tribalism, the more this movement can grow. With that said, here's Keith reading the book's introduction, Why Tribalism is Ruining Your Life. Tribalism is wrecking your life. I'll accept a cinnamon roll from the devil. You don't need to be a good person or agree with my politics or check any identity boxes. If you offer me a cinnamon roll, I'll say thanks and enjoy every bite. But not everyone feels the same way. For some, accepting doughy balls of sugary cinnamon goodness from the wrong kind of person is tantamount to compromising your integrity and makes you complicit in things you disagree with. A win-win-win. In the middle of the pandemic, when quarantining was a way of life, Love Coffee, a purveyor of delicious cinnamon rolls, was one of many local businesses in our town struggling to keep their doors open. This was especially sad because they primarily employ people with disabilities. So The Crossing, where I am a pastor, had an idea we hoped might be a win-win-win. We'd buy a lot of cinnamon rolls over the course of several months so Love Coffee could stay open and the company's employees could keep their jobs. But where would we send all these cinnamon rolls? How about to people working some of the toughest jobs during the early pandemic? Teachers. Each week, we sent the cinnamon rolls to different schools, giving teachers and staff a warm thank you. Love Coffee wins. Their employees win. School staffs win. This is the kind of thing The Crossing loves to do, because we like to be known by what we're for, not what we're against. And if we break some unfortunately well-earned stereotypes about cantankerous Christians along the way, then even Jesus wins. That's a four-way win. What could possibly go wrong? How Cinnamon Rolls Got Canceled 
At first, everything went smoothly. Teachers thanked us on social media, and we thanked them right back. Every week, Love Coffee sent an email informing another principal that the treats were on the way. But one week, they received an unusual response. The principal turned down the cinnamon rolls. This is the email he wrote. I know that you all will be treating our staff due to a donation from the crossing. I do not feel like the crossing represents the same values we share as a staff here at our school. The crossing leadership has expressed some homophobic and transphobic views, and that goes against the environment that we are trying to foster here. I understand that Love Inc. and Love Coffee get a lot of support from the crossing. I was wondering if you could bill our school for the treats tomorrow and use those funds from the crossing for something else within your organization. The cinnamon rolls got canceled. Welcome to the era of polarization. How would you respond? What do you do when someone accuses you of the modern equivalent of leprosy? What do you do when people say you're not the kind of person they can accept a cinnamon roll from? My first thought was to say, okay, I'll eat your cinnamon rolls myself. When I realized we were sending over 100 rolls, I needed a second thought. Should I report this principal to the district office for misrepresenting our church and lying about our views? Should I fire back with our own nasty email? Should I ignore it and hope the problem didn't spread to other schools? Should I pray the email away? How would Jesus respond? Okay, don't judge me for asking this. I swear I don't wear any weird bracelets. But what would Jesus do in this sticky situation? I think Jesus would take the principal to lunch and build a bridge, maybe even a friendship. So that's what I did. This wasn't the first time I'd sat across the table from someone upset at me for things I didn't think I'd done. No, I'm not talking about my wife. I did most of the things she's been upset with. The principal's email alluded to a sermon I preached in the fall of 2019, which was a tad controversial. Okay, slightly more than a tad. We were preaching through Genesis, and we came to the passage about God making humans male and female. In my sermon, I discussed God's design for two genders and called our church to radically love our local trans community. Maybe you disagree with me? That's okay. I'd love to talk. There were a wide variety of responses to that sermon, including some that were extra. I was called Hitler and the Antichrist. I was physically threatened. We had to install security cameras at my house. Police officers patrolled our neighborhood. Amid the vitriol, which of course lived mostly on Facebook, several people reached out personally to express sincere disagreements. I wanted to meet them to listen and learn. So that's what I did. I met with every person who would sit down with me. Most of them vehemently disagreed with me on this sensitive topic, but I discovered that all of them were good people who cared for others. We simply differed on how to best love people struggling with gender dysphoria. When I met with people, I started the conversation by asking them, what do you wish I knew before I gave that sermon? Then I wrote down everything they said in my notebook. I wasn't there to argue with them or to try to convince them I was right and they were wrong. I wanted to build a bridge. And the best way to do that was by listening and learning from other people's experiences. I found each person to be intelligent and sincere. Hearing their stories left me with more empathy. While I did not change my perspective on the central topic, if I could do that sermon over again, I know I'd make changes to strive for even more clarity and compassion. A new goal for your next argument. What if the goal wasn't to win an argument, but to win a friend? What if we could be friends with people who hold beliefs, important beliefs, that run contrary to ours? Do those kind of friendships make our communities better, or do they compromise our integrity? 
I think they make communities better. I think they'd make your life better. So when the principal declined the cinnamon rolls, I asked him to lunch at a pizza joint. Maybe he wasn't a dessert guy. Conversation about our personal lives flowed easily. When we began discussing the great cinnamon roll controversy, he told me quite a bit had changed since we had originally scheduled the lunch. The delay had given him more time to investigate what I publicly said on LGBTQ issues, and he realized I didn't quite fit the angry fundamentalist stereotype. Plus, he'd had a chance to consult some of the senior administrators in the district office. They wisely pointed out that the church wasn't asking to preach sermons to teachers. The cinnamon rolls didn't even have a Jesus Loves You sticker hiding anywhere. They were just cinnamon rolls. And the more he explained why he'd originally turned them down, the more I understood his perspective. He wasn't trying to make a grand political statement. He was trying to respect the opinions of one of his valued employees who was alarmed by accepting anything from the crossing. If I were in his situation, I might have done the same thing. It turns out he wasn't a bad guy and we aren't a bad church. We ended lunch by agreeing that as a culture, we've become more tribal. We have our political tribes, ideological tribes, identity tribes, and social tribes, and we're hardwired to see people outside of our groups as a hostile force for evil. He and I agreed that we wanted to be a part of a community where people who hold the different beliefs, values, and politics can work together for the common good. But the only way that will happen is if we build relationships, listen to one another, and are open-minded enough to consider opposing views. The vast majority of the people who live in your community are sincere and share many of the same hopes and fears that you do. Jesus didn't come to earth to recruit culture warriors. He came to recruit disciples who imitated his sacrificial love. He came to announce that through his work, God's kingdom of love, justice, and mercy was coming on earth as in heaven, and everyone was invited. You didn't need to be morally pure to join him. You didn't need a certain set of politics to qualify. You didn't need a certain racial or sexual identity to be welcome. The only requirement was to follow him. Our culture desperately needs students of Jesus, schooled in the ways of enemy love, humility, meekness, and truth-telling. Jesus offers the ultimate solution to the tribalism that is tearing our community apart, transforming humans with all their tribal tendencies from the inside out, your life will be more rich, full, generous, and loving if you become a student of His way. This book is a small step in that direction. You'll learn how tribalism makes your life miserable in Part 1, why tribalism animates our cultural moment in Part 2, and how Jesus offers you a path out of tribalism in Part 3. I hope this book brings healing in your family, friendships, and community by giving you a taste of heaven's love on earth. One final note. You probably noticed this book has two authors. We chose not to announce the specific author behind every story because this book isn't about us, and trust us, it would get annoying. If curiosity is killing you, hit one of us up on Twitter. We'll respond. I hope you enjoyed the introduction. This entire book is written in a conversational tone so that anybody can read it and anybody can get something out of it. We use lots of illustrations, lots of applications, and we hope it's chock full of biblical wisdom. 
but don't turn off the podcast yet. We've got one more chapter to share with you. This is chapter four, how tribalism creates unnecessary enemies. In our experience and in our community, we've seen how tribalism has broken apart wonderful, amazing friendships, which nobody wants. It creates enemies where there don't need to be any enemies. My hope as you listen to this chapter is that you'll hear your story in it and that it will help you make friends where once enemies stood. Tribalism creates your enemies. Are you really sure they're all bad people? I asked. He responded with a confidence few can muster. They are out to get us. They want to see us fail. They will deploy any policy they can imagine to put us behind. He wasn't talking about his business rivals or his wife's best friends. He was talking about the libs. Apparently, Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, and Chuck Schumer are in a massive conspiracy with evil media elites to destroy people like him, everyday white guys. I pointed out that he lived in a nice house, had a healthy family, and ran a successful business. Surely they weren't out to destroy those things. And if they were, they didn't seem to be very good at it. I granted that a small number of people might want to hurt all white men. But I had a hard time believing this was the animating motivation behind all liberal politicians and voters. He demurred. I was just choosing not to see reality. Fast forward one week, and I was meeting with someone else, a woman deeply concerned by the church's silence about evil Trump voters. By not condemning everyone who voted for Trump, we were, she feared, allowing evil to fester unchecked and putting black people at risk. I responded, Are you sure that everyone who voted for Trump is a bodily threat to our black church members? She pondered and then nodded. You don't seem to understand, she said. People are dying. They are dying everywhere at the hands of these Trump supporters. I don't know who will snap next, but I would never let my black friends be alone with a Trump supporter. I asked, what did she think about my black friends who voted for Donald Trump? And what did she think about black congregants at our church who had forged deep friendships with Trump voters? She stood firm. Those were rare anecdotes. The Trump voters are out to get them. Why do we feel so attacked? Maybe you're thinking that both sides feel attacked because both sides have become more extreme in their policy positions. But is this really true? Are the policy positions of liberals in 2022 more liberal than they were in 1984? Every election year, a survey conducted by the American National Election Studies, ANES, ranks Americans on a policy extremity index. A score of one would mean that the policy positions supported by Democrats and Republicans were extremely far apart. A score of zero would mean that their policy positions were extremely similar. In 1984, Americans of both parties were as close as they've ever been. We scored a .44 in policy difference. In 2012, Americans were as far apart as they've ever been. We scored a .49. According to ANES, this is a very small change. Even at our furthest separation, we agree on a lot more than we think. In other words, if we're polarized, it's not because of policy differences. It's something else. And whatever is polarizing us, it's bad. 
Ongoing research from ANES found that Democrats like Republicans far less today than they did 30 years ago. The same is true for Republicans. Both Democrats and Republicans report that they would be happier with their neighborhood if more people from the opposite political party moved out. Most parents say they would prefer their child marry someone with the same politics more than the same religious beliefs. Employers show noticeable prejudice against job applications from people perceived to be in the other party. Whatever's polarizing us is causing us to think that our other partied neighbors are evil, menacing enemies. To understand what's causing the enmity, we need to talk about two groups of fifth graders in the 50s. How to Flip the Tribal Switch In the summer of 1954, an academic psychologist named Musafer Sharif brought two groups of white, middle-class, Protestant boys to Robbers Cave, a camp in southeastern Oklahoma. His goal, observe how the children interact when separated into competitive teams. During the first week, two groups of boys were separated. One group became the Eagles, and the other identified themselves as the Rattlers. During the second week of camp, the Eagles and Rattlers were introduced to each other, and demands for competition quickly began. A day later, they started name-calling. The day after that, they raided each other's camps, threw stones, and accused the other team of cheating. The Eagles stole the Rattlers' flag and burned it. The Rattlers retaliated by stealing the pants of the Eagles' leader, painting them orange, and using them as their new flag. Soon, they were blaming each other for imaginary grievances. The Eagles noticed their watering hole had become cooler overnight and concocted false allegations. The Rattlers had filled it with ice. When the Rattlers found trash on their campsite, they blamed the Eagles. In truth, the Rattlers had simply failed to clean up after themselves. The camp counselors ended the experiment early because they feared the boys would come to blows. Something happened during the Robber's Cave experiment that's been repeated in labs countless times over the last 50 years the tribal switch got flipped. Two groups of boys who could have easily become close friends instead became embittered enemies. All it took to flip the tribal switch was a little competition. But these were fifth grade boys, right? Surely adults can do better. We don't make unnecessary enemies. A Nation of Eagles and Rattlers Henry Tajfel, a Polish social psychologist, wanted to build on the robber's cave experiment. He posed a question, what was the minimum amount of competition necessary to turn adults against each other? He began by creating two meaningless groups. Researchers asked participants to estimate the number of dots shown on a screen. After each participant guessed, the researchers randomly placed the person into either the overestimator group or the underestimator group. None of the participants knew the names or could see the faces of anyone in either group. The researchers then asked them to choose one of two options. One, everyone in both groups could receive the maximum amount of money. Or two, the participants' own group could receive less money than the maximum amount of money, while the other group could receive even... Two, the participants' own group could receive less than the maximum amount of money, while the other group could receive even less than them. The rational choice is the first option, Everyone gets more money, including you and your team. But Taj Fell observed that people are not rational by nature. They're tribal. Most participants picked the second option. Even Taj Fell was surprised. He knew group identity mattered, but did not expect random, meaningless identities to tribalize people. 
Ironically, this test was supposed to be the beginning of the experiment. He planned to slowly add conditions until discrimination was achieved. But Tajfeld discovered that humans need almost no conditions to discriminate. As soon as people are placed in groups, social identity is formed. Not only do group members want their team to win, they want to see the other team lose. Liliana Mason, a political science researcher at Johns Hopkins, put it well. Even when there is nothing to fight over, group members want to win. Brain imaging tells us the same story. Using functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI, neuroscientist David Eagleman discovered that when an adult sees a picture of an in-group member feeling sad, the adult feels sadness with them. But when an adult sees an out-group member feeling sad, the adult experiences positive emotions. Humans are a groupish species. It's our claim to fame. Solitary cheetahs can't build cities. And it's our Achilles heel. Solitary cheetahs also don't build concentration camps. At our best, we focus on what unites us. Jesus gathered wildly diverse people to build his kingdom on earth as in heaven. At our worst, we fixate on what divides us. Nimrod gathered wildly diverse people to build Babel. Our groupishness manufactures incredible good and incorrigible grievance. Conservatives and liberals are not significantly more polarized over policy issues than they were 30 years ago, but we do like each other significantly less. The simple truth is that we pretend to disagree on more than we actually do. We've become a nation of eagles and rattlers. Our politics now define our social identities. The tribal switch got flipped, and we suddenly find that our limbic-level groupishness is transforming goodwill neighbors into enemies, whose defeat gives us delight. And all this unnecessary enmity is making your life miserable. A Beautiful, Strange Friendship Do you feel happier when loved ones become enemies? Do you feel joy when you're embattled? Do communities flourish when neighbors, who share much in common, turn each other into enemies? In 2019, our church partnered with a progressive documentary film festival to launch a new initiative called The Aletheia Project. Together, we plan to bring controversial, progressive films and audiences into evangelical churches like ours in order to create opportunities for conversation between these historically divided groups. We doubted that attendees would change their ethical positions, but we hope to create mutual understanding, build bridges, and then work collectively toward the common good. This project grew out of our strange but beautiful friendship with the film festival. More than a decade earlier, our church began supporting a charity fund at the festival. We eventually became one of the festival's largest supporters. And the friendship wasn't just institutional. People from our church bought passes, attended the festival, and invited friends. People from the festival visited our church. Some of our members joined the festival staff team. Others became super volunteers. Our church's leaders and the festival's leaders were sincere friends. When people outside of Columbia saw it, they gawked. It was bizarre. The New York Times and Christianity Today wrote pieces about it. Our unusual friendship tapped into a shared longing to unite across apparently unbridgeable divides. But let me be clear, we disagreed on a lot. We built relationships despite knowing we disagreed on serious and substantive issues because we took the time to discover that we all shared something greater in common, a desire to see our city flourish. Both parties believe that the growth of arts, culture, and business led to a more vibrant, inclusive, successful city, and we wanted to support that growth. 
We never hid our differences. We talked about them. Sometimes it got heated, but we always listened, learned, and sought mutual understanding. It was beautiful. It was strange. And it was almost over. How Tribalism Creates Enemies To launch the Aletheia Project, we showed our church a progressive film, After Tiller. The film tells the stories of doctors who perform third-term abortions. After the film, we hosted a spirited debate with the filmmakers, the festival, and the church on the topic of abortion. Anyone with an open mind learned something new that night. While it didn't surprise me that showing the film ruffled the feathers of our church, we are firmly pro-life, after all, I was surprised how much the event angered staff and volunteers at the festival. I felt confused. What could possibly upset them about showing a pro-abortion film in a church? After several conversations, I discovered that some of the festival's staff believed that we were dangerous to women and society. They felt that the screening and debate loaned credibility to our anti-abortion stance. The festival's leaders were saying, We may disagree with these people, but they aren't crazy or evil. But the staff disagreed. We were the enemy. Despite initial tension, the festival and the church moved forward with the project. A year later, we were in New York City, launching the project by screening films at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. The event was a success, and future opportunities looked bright. At the same time, we were preaching through Genesis at our church. Just two weeks after our NYC screening, we came to the passage in Genesis chapter 1 that says God made humans male and female. This is a controversial passage, but we felt compelled to teach it faithfully. So Keith preached, calling Christians to love our transgender neighbors, some of whom attend our church, while remaining faithful to the Bible's teachings that there are two immutable genders. We inadvertently stepped on a landmine. A small group of people, many of whom did not even attend the festival, started a petition demanding that the festival break ties with the church over the sermon. A local art studio we also supported beat them to the punch, releasing a letter condemning the church as transphobic. Sadly, the festival followed suit with a kinder letter that apologized to their staff, volunteers, and community for associating with us and permanently severed the partnership. I felt terribly for their leadership. Honestly, I don't know if they could have done anything different. Yet it was also strange because nothing had changed about our stance on transgender issues. The festival knew our position years before that sermon. We knew their position. We had candid conversations over our disagreement. And we agreed that promoting love, kindness, and empathy for all transgender people should be the highest priority. That fundamental agreement allowed us to partner together. So if no one's outlook changed, what did change? The tribal switch got flipped in our community. People had to pick sides. Differences suddenly mattered more than similarities. Working for shared goals was a damnable compromise. Unity was diabolical. Intergroupishness took over, and long-standing friends needed to be denounced publicly as enemies. One of the most beautiful collective relationships in our city came to a close. I'm still grieving it, because I don't think our city has felt quite the same since. Is there another way? After the festival ended our partnership, we knew we had a decision to make. News organizations were calling for our response. Should we fire back, critique them publicly, tell our church to boycott the festival, ask business owners to withdraw their support? Of course not. Jesus taught us a different way. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. It wasn't easy, but it was simple. Jesus told us what to do. 
love. So we took to the internet to thank the festival for our past partnership. I, and others, wrote long social media posts sincerely expressing why we love the festival and encouraging fellow church members to continue attending in the future. In a private conversation with one of the festival's leaders, he said to me, it was a masterclass on grace. I wanted to take credit, but I couldn't. I replied that we were merely students of the Master. Jesus founded the one and only tribe whose purpose is to put the other tribes first, especially when it hurts. Jesus was the first teacher to train his followers to resist their deep-rooted, limbic-level groupishness. His life is our example. When we were his enemies, he didn't flip the tribal switch. He didn't set out to see us lose, even though we deserved it. By dying for his enemies, Jesus reconciled them to his Father. His enemy love created a community out of tribal division. Jesus is calling you into that community, a beautiful, strange community that sets aside its own self-interest, the kind that relinquishes personal advantages, the kind that assumes the best about others and wants the best for them always. Of course, I fail to live up to this ideal more often than I like to admit. That's because I lack the strength and willpower to love my enemies. It's only when I realize that Jesus has already given me, his one-time enemy, an inexhaustible well of love, and that he's promised me ultimate victory over my true enemies, sin, death, and the devil, that I am freed from the desire to exact victories from my perceived enemies in this world, instead offering them a love that is not really my own. Where is tribalism tempting you to make enemies? How are you tempted to belittle, shame, or scold them? Why do you find loving that enemy so difficult? Who is Jesus calling you to love today? I know it's strange, I know it's hard, but I also know a deeper truth. It's beautiful. And it's beautiful because enemy love is the kind of love that makes Jesus' beauty most visible. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you like those chapters, I think you'll enjoy the whole book. If you haven't ordered a copy, go grab one right now before you forget. If you have a friend who you think might enjoy this book, forward them a link to the podcast. They can get a little taste of it today. No one book can end tribalism in the church. To do that, we need the whole body of Christ. Together, we can resist political tribalism in the name of Jesus and show the world a better path forward.